What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast, brought to you by Discipleship.org. My name is Dave Stovall, and I'm your host. Right now, we're working our way through the track sessions from the most recent forum that we hosted this year. We are in the middle of Global Discipleship Initiatives track sessions. This one is about how microgroups bring together four key transformative qualities. Number one, relational transparency. Two, God's truth and community. Three, life change accountability. And four, engagement in our God-given mission. Greg and Ralph share some pretty great material towards the end of this episode. So make sure you listen on after the break. They talk about just how to lead with transparency and how to ask people to commit to the group. Sometimes that's one of the hardest parts and one of the hardest things to do. This is very helpful. You're going to enjoy this episode. Let's dive in and hear from Greg and Ralph from GDI. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, my name is Greg Ogden. I'm helping lead this session, partner over here with Ralph Rittenhouse. Uh, we're kind of the principals here, Dave Shanuel, who's the our national director. And I want to introduce my wife, who's also back at the table over there. She's there to take your money. Uh, and hopefully it ends up in the right account. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, and, uh, and Cowboy, right there. Uh, you might hear briefly from him in this session. Um, I met I met Cowboy in prison. Cowboy, I met Cowboy in prison, and I was not the one in prison. Uh, so, uh, but he's he's carried he's carried out. He told me I could he could he could say that I could he told me I could say that. Uh, so, but he's only led twenty six microgroups. So, and most of them in prison. So he's a, he's a, so carried it out. Um, so you have an outline in front of you. We are on page five, session three. Uh, what we have covered so far is we started with the culture of disciple making, looked at a couple of church settings where the churches were in either in process of transformation or went through a kind of a complete transformation. The Cameroon Community Church was certainly the illustration of that in that session. And then we looked at Jesus' relational style of disciple making in this last session. Uh, leading, bridging off of Luke chapter 6, where Jesus called his disciples. And we talked about the fact that even within his broader group of disciples, he had what? Three. Uh, Peter, James, and John, who were a part of his microgroup. Uh, I don't know that Jesus used that term uh, back in those days. But, uh, come, microgroup, let's meet together. Uh, but that uh, certainly seemed to be the impact that he has. Dave is going to start us off here and... Uh, Share some when you set down registration card, some of you newbies, if you pull that out and you fill one of these out before. Um, but if you want to get in the drawing, fill it out again. Um, at the end of the session, what's that? Robert's filling Robert. I'm trying to look at the I think it's the whole series. I wanted to point out a couple of things on this registration card. Uh, the, uh, the third note down, I would like more information regarding GDI cohort training. This is an extensive training where we will invest um, at least two hours a month with you meeting on Zoom uh, for two years. The assessing discipleship, digging deep into kind of a deep dive of disciple making, 
that at the end of that process, we have helped you to develop a multi-year plan in transitioning your church to a disciple-making culture. And the prerequisite for being in a cohort is to have gone through two micro groups, definitely into your second group. And so to help you to get that ball rolling, the second point on your card, I'm interested in participating in coaching micro group. We will, again, on Zoom, we set a, this up with three to four people, and we give you the example modeling a micro group atmosphere. And we will spend eight to 12 weeks with you. Uh, Requisite for getting into a coaching micro group is reading Transforming Discipleship. The first week or two, we're getting to know each other. Spend 90 minutes on Zoom, again, a 12 weeks. Get to know each other, and we will walk through the paradigm shifts. One of the big shifts is transitioning from talking about discipleship to now we're talking about disciple making. And that's a huge difference. And Greg mentioned in the previous session the transition from information to transformation. And so at the end of a coaching microgroup, we have helped you get launched uh, and start that process in your church well. Coming out of the coaching microgroup and you start microgroup in your church, and we will assign a coach. Each of your microgroup leaders, you will also be a part of a quarterly microgroup leaders meeting with all the other microgroup leaders in your region. We'll meet for an hour and a half. Uh, once a quarter to celebrate, to equip, to encourage, to pray. We'll be learning from other microgroup leaders in the region. So, again, a very significant distinction that we bring to this disciple making movement in the U.S. is we come alongside of Don't right. we'll get this filled out with questions towards the end, and uh, we'll do the book. Thank you, Dave. All right, in this third session, uh, like I said, page five in your notes, middle of the page, you, you'll pick up the outline there. Pretty much it will be mirrored on the screen if my PowerPoint doesn't fail on me like it has been uh, doing that. So I'm not sure what the problem is. Sir. But uh, just to share where we are, uh, like I said, we, this is our overall kind of visual teaching outline. Although my goal is disciples who make disciples a transformed congregation where that's the value and you have a way of doing it. Uh, I might say two things about cultural change here. Uh, how do you change a culture? You have to have a way of doing something. And you have to have a baseline for doing it. So why do we say with microgroups, you choose a, an approach to this alphamating that is uniform across the board. You will not change a culture if you have laissez-faire disciple making. Everybody does it in their own way. Um, because it will just be a muted trumpet. You will not know what's going on. Uh, second thing is uh, you need to have a, a foundational content, which we'll look at in the next session. This is your kind of your baseline uh, truths, patterns, behaviors that you're trying to get as foundational across the board. If you can put those two things in place, um, which is actually contrary to the entire American spirit, and we do our own thing, um, then you can, you can change a culture. Otherwise, you're going to be left with 
every man for himself, which is which is the American culture. So, okay, so um, cultural shift. How do we get there? We've been focusing here as we did on the relational environment, the car. We're going to continue on that with in this particular session as well, because we're looking at the transformative elements that happen in context of the microgroup. We call this the hot houses of the Holy Spirit because of the accelerated growth we experience uh, in that. And then the next session, we'll look at these two parts. You need, a, you need a leader, but you need the kind of model where this leadership is available to the vast majority of people. If you want to have a disciple-making movement, it's got to be simple enough that people can do it. It can't be so complex um, that only a rarefied ear for some. And then the reproducible process is your GPS, your map, in a sense, of how to get to where you want to go. And that's what we call the curriculum or the foundational baseline content um, that you want to have there. So let's jump into here. Uh, so hothouse effect. Um, the, way, the way I came up with this image was my wife and I uh, took a trip to Alaska in, I think it was July, about 2000. And how many of us been to Alaska? You've been there? Okay. What month did you go there? But it wasn't January. May through October. No, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, in May through October, what happens? The sun is basically up all the time, right? So you get this little sliver of darkness at midnight, and then you hear these amazing stories because of the hothouse effect of how rapidly things grow. So you get these pumpkins that are 500 pounds in three or four months, you know, that kind of thing. I thought, you know, that's what I was experiencing in these group settings that I saw people in a sense, speed up their growth uh, because of some of the environmental conditions that came together in the context of the microgroup experience. So we'll take a, a look at that. And so here's the overall pattern that we'll share, but um, we're only going to be able to focus in on two of these. So when we open our hearts in transparent trust to each other around the truth of God's word and the spirit of mutual accountability engaged in our God-given mission, we are in the Holy Spirit's hothouse of transformation. Time will only permit that we look at number one and number three here on, on this list in terms of what you see in your outline. I wish we had time time for more, but that's why you buy Transforming Discipleship and read chapter eight. Uh, so you get the whole picture, you know, at that, at that point. So speaking of a picture, um, so this is a picture of prisoners in a, a southern Texas prison, about half an hour's drive south of San Antonio the John E. Connolly Maximum Security Prison. And about a few months before I retired, way back when, uh, I got this picture from the chaplain, digital photo, and I noticed, hmm, look at this, hot house of the Holy Spirit. Right there is the mural in the middle of this unit in this Texas prison. And he took a quote out of my book. And we, when we open our hearts and transfer trust around the truth of God's word and spirit of mutual, shall life-changing accountability, we're in the Holy Spirit hot house of transformation. And I found out at that time they had this three-year discipleship process. He used some of my books in each one of those three years and invited me to come down to the prison. And I thought, and frankly, I, I wrote back and said, love to come down and see you. And I hoped he wasn't going to respond. As <laughs> <laughs> actually, when I thought about, Cowboys heard this story many a time, about doing prison ministry, and I heard people testify about that, my inner response was, God bless you for doing that. <laughs> and no way impossible I'm going to be involved in that. Well, you never say that, right? So went down, uh, met these gentlemen, and uh, had a very impactful experience. Uh, 
You ever been ambushed by God? Caught off guard. Well, that was God's ambush of me. Uh, so I found out that I actually felt a call to prison ministry. And for six and a half years, I uh, was going to a local prison in California, of course, where, where I live, Monterey, California. But uh, I just want to start with a, a letter, uh, not from this particular prison, but from another one, Jeff- Jefferson City Correctional Center in Jefferson City, Missouri. One of the things I've done over the years is donate books uh, to prisons and Disciples of Essentials <clears throat> in particular. And I think you'll be blessed uh, by the response in this letter, but it's also very challenging uh, in terms of what they were doing and what our churches are not doing compared yeah. to what they were doing in, in prison. So the author says, I want to write to encourage you. God has used your words to make a great impact here among the brothers in chains. A quick rundown of who we are and how this group got started. We are a level five maximum security prison. Many of us have life sentences. Some of us will never leave these fences. It's a great temptation to believe that as society has deemed us as unfit to live among them, God has given up on us as well. The lies the enemy whispers in our ears come in the form of doubt, guilt, shame, and a lot of uselessness. Quote, God could never use someone like you. You are disqualified. God can never love someone like you. But thankfully, we believe that the Bible is true and the gospel is for us. Grace is amazing precisely because he saves wretches like us. Out of the ashes of our sin and addictions, God has brought forth the beauty of a community of broken men, desperate for a savior. Also believing that the Great Commission is for us, we knew that we carried a responsibility to make disciples, Christ-centered, reproducing disciples. So several years ago, about 10 of us got together, came up with a strategy to reaching the men around us for Christ. Each of us would find two men who were saved, hungry and untaught, and we would take them, take a year of our lives and pour into them. Of course, here's where you came in. You, your curriculum and generosity to provide us with books gave us a foundation to get started. I wish I could tell you that a couple of years later, every convict in the prison was walking with the Lord. Of course, that is not the case. But this month, we have started our fourth generation of discipleship. Every man went through the program and then was challenged to find two men, faithful men to pass the baton of discipleship to. The baton of discipleship. Oh, just happened to have one. Uh, see that? Yeah, their mouth does too. Fads at the time of discipleship too. To see multiplication in action has been such a blessing. We are growing. And this is my favorite line of the letter. God is becoming famous here. <laughs> so hope that's a little bit inspiring. So let's get into this first quality here. And that's the, the necessity of transparent trust. Why is this so important in the disciple-making process? Why do we keep the groups at three or four? Trust. Um, So, yeah, transparent trust. Could you get to the level where you can entrust yourself, the deep thoughts, the deep struggles of your life to others uh, is so foundational. Because if you're not applying the word of God to where you live, what's the point? Um, If it's just Bible study accumulating information, uh, you know, I, I was thinking as we were, you know, doing that, the, the role of scripture in disciple making, we, we just need to focus on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's profitable for what? 
doctrine or teaching, depending on what translation you are. What's the second one? Rebuking. What is rebuking? <clears throat> Ever been rebuked by scripture? I call it the, the dagger in the heart. You're reading scripture and boom, boom, you know, I'm, I'm exposed. I'm undone. I see myself. Uh, and, and then you can see yourself in scripture, but also then you can share with your brothers or sisters in Christ uh, the things that you are seeing in yourself that need to be changed. And then you do become accountable partners. And that's what Ralph will be talking about a little bit later on, the whole covenantal uh, relationship that we have together in this. And then correction, right? What does that mean? You found out what you're doing wrong, and then you got to figure out what's to do right. And you got to get back on a right path. I think that's what correction means. And then your training in righteousness, this scripture is, is our equipping life and equipping tool uh, for that. So what are some of the elements of trust? I love this word, trustworthy. Um, what does it mean to become trustworthy? Uh, in, our, in our lives. Well, some characteristics here. One, uh, trust what keeps confidences. Of course, as a part of our covenant, that's exactly what we say. Uh, uh, that what's shared in the group stays in the group. Uh, unless you've been given express permission to share something outside of the group, then we want to be known, we don't know that this is not going to be spread around. Uh, so you keep confidences. You you can be assured of each other. Ever been in a situation where confidence has been broken? Somebody has shared something they should not have shared, and the hurt that that was uh, to that that person, uh, or the undermining of the group that's there. As soon as that happens, like mm, wow, that uh, that becomes very very difficult. Uh, secondly, it's full of grace. I oftentimes, there's a quote that I use in my book of a woman inviting uh, people into her discipleship process. And she says, I don't want to be in a group where there's a lot of comparison or judgment uh, with each other. Uh, it's, it's full of grace. And what's that mean? We're all capable of things that we would be ashamed of. Uh, and sometimes our shame keeps us hidden, right? Go back to Genesis 3, where were Adam and Eve when, when God went looking for them in the garden? They were hiding out, and we have a very introduction of shame. Uh, shame is about hiding. And we don't want to be exposed to be seen, because we've done the most awful thing that any human being could possibly do, right? Uh, no. Because <laughs> uh, by the same time, that's what causes you. So if there's enough trust and grace to almost even anticipate the fact that all of us are capable of things that uh, we could not imagine. Then you would offer grace. Uh, listens, we're going to get back into, we're going to get that into this a little more fully uh, in a bit. But uh, listening happens for probably the most loving things we can do is learn to listen. And we'll, I'll talk about the attributes of that, or you will talk about the attributes of that in a moment. And finally, it's rooted in humility. I mean, that's, I think, full of grace and rooted in humility are very overlapping concepts. We are broken people. We come together. We become unshockable in terms of what we hear from each other's lives and anticipate that that's the case. Okay. Um, how many of you have seen and read Zero's book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, for his whole, whole series, right? Um, I think he has provided us 
uh, in this niche of emotional health uh, with a great service uh, to us. Uh, we use this as a part of our cohort training. Um, we have a couple of men right here who are a part of that cohort. Uh, Dean and uh, Jim are both in that. So if you want to ask them about what that experience is like, but close to, I think, 50% through our experience together. I think so, so great. So um, just some things that uh, Pete talks about here in this book. I'll just kind of leap, leap off of that. We've had a lack of attention to our own emotional health. Perhaps you've had people in your life, uh, even authority figures in your life, where you said, there's something really amiss in that person's life. I had a, there's a pastor I interned under uh, when I was a seminary student uh, who was the most, one of the finest orators and communicators I have ever heard. I mean, he could spin out a sermon poetically in a powerful way week after week. But when you got to know him, Many ways, a horrible person. I would be in his office and he would be upset about something. He would lift up his phone and yell at his assistant, you know, for why didn't you do this? You know, uh, oh my gosh, there's something missing <laughs> in this individual. We had an, uh, a trustee in our church in Chicago who had the desire to become the head of the board of trustees. It was a coveted position because it puts you right next to the senior pastor and working together with him. And he wanted to get to that position. And the senior pastor did not choose him for that role. And what did he do? He took his $250,000 a year that he gave to the church and left and said, I'm out of here. There's something, he came, became like a 13 year old, I think at that point, that's where his emotional development uh, got arrested. So we have, uh, and I can, I can point to myself, I'm, I'm exhibit A when it comes to areas of emotional, the biggest emotional struggle that I've had in my walk with Christ was dealing with fear and anxiety in my life. I came to Christ in the midst of some fear, but never knew how to apply the love of God to that fear and anxiety that I had in my gut. And throughout my early adult years, I was I came to a moment uh, where my future was uncertain. I went to serve with a dear friend of mine who was a pastor of the church, senior pastor. I was an associate. He left the church to take another call. We had about 18 months together. That was a wonderful time together. And then my future was exposed because I could not become the senior pastor of the church that I was in because of the Presbyterian rules. And, uh, and there was going to be somebody else that was going to come in and try as I might to trust God for my future, I couldn't get there. So for about a three month period, I would wake up every morning with this clutch in my stomach, and uh, which was kind of my vote of non-confidence in God to take care of my future. I would be reading everything I could about the love of God for me personally, and I couldn't get that truth from here to here. And I finally had to realize I got a problem. I got a problem that I'm not solving myself. So I went to a fellow associate pastor of the church there and one of the elders who were both involved in healing prayer ministry. And I laid it out you know, to them. And we had a prayer time together uh, that had a couple of visuals in it. I'm thinking of them right now <laughs> that uh, were very, very powerful. But I'll tell you the, the ultimate outcome. And, this was surprising because I'm not a visual person in my head. I'm an idea guy, thoughts, uh, concepts, ideas are what I 
focus on. But it was an image of Jesus uh, as you might see him at the transfiguration. I don't know how you visualize that transfiguration, Jesus in glistening white. And uh, here he was in glistening white. Could not quite see his face, but I knew this was Jesus. And he had his arms out like this. And he had a young boy across his arm. <coughs> at five, six years old. I knew that young boy was me. And then I saw him spin around and then throw his head back in great laughter and joy over this child. And, you know, I did not have actually a deep emotional reaction at that moment. Uh, but I knew, I knew that something was starting to heal for me. And it, it did. I, I like Francis Schaeffer's phrase that, Substantial healing, substantial healing is possible in this life. And I sort of, and I would credit everything that has happened in me in terms of responding to God's call was because of the release that I started to experience from anxiety at that point. You know? So I could tell you, take you through various stages of challenge of that, but that's a whole other seminar. <laughs> Emotional challenges, lack of attention. So everyone, alive in our fallen world has been wounded in life, leading out of weakness and vulnerability. In the U.S., we, we like power and strength. You know? We like those politicians that really can kick butt in front of mail. Even Christians like those politicians that can kick butt to our shame, I must admit. Uh, but you know, Jesus is our model of weakness and vulnerability, right? Uh, born in obscurity, right? Suffered in ignominy. Uh, you know, acted as the, as the sacrificial servant. Uh, and so we can live, work, live out of weakness and, and vulnerability like that as well. And we need to embrace this, because there said, the gift of our own life. We all, each one of us, have either besetting sins in our life that we've wrestled with over time uh, that seem to keep coming back and keep bothering us. And so, can I, can I get over this? Come on, what's the problem here? And those are the kinds of things that we need to be sharing with each other. Because I can guarantee you every one of us has our stuff in this room. Uh, I don't know your stories, and you don't know much about my story, but we're fallen human beings. And uh, so we need to get, get that place where we can touch, touch that. I love this image of Kintsugi pottery. I bet you many of you have heard about Kintsugi pottery. It's a 14th century Japanese artwork where broken pieces of pottery are brought back together with gold-lined uh, structures that makes, they say makes the original pottery even more beautiful uh, than that because it embraces the fault lines I know, in the pottery, embraces the weakness. So uh, Japanese philosophy was wabi-sabi, I guess that's how you pronounce that, uh, sees beauty in the damaged, flawed, and imperfect. Uh, we offer to God our brokenness and watch him put us back together again. So uh, I think that image of we have this truth in earthen vessels is a really good way to look at this very image. Uh, you know, God works through us even though we are leaky vessels, right? The Holy Spirit leaks. Uh, and we want to get that patched up and, and be as whole as we possibly can. And part of that wholeness comes through these trust relationships. And then uh, the treasures buried in, in grief and loss. I think I'll pass on that. But if you haven't read this, um, just very helpful things to, to look at in our life. 
Okay, let me let me just go through some stages here of uh, trust development uh, that occurs. So let's walk through some stages here of trust development and uh, see how that can develop. So I start with this principle. The extent to which we are willing to reveal to others those areas of our life that need God's transforming touch is the extent to which we are inviting the Holy Spirit to make us new. Think about that. If I'm really serious, Lord, about wanting you to make me whole, I'm going to willing to share my unwholeness uh, with others in trust, of course. That's not to everybody. That's just people that you've developed deep trust in. Uh, what? Is that a true statement, do you think? Because I could, I could hear people saying, well, listen, uh, God knows everything to know about me. Why do I need to tell, talk to other people about what I'm struggling with? Why, why is that necessary you know, to him in my life? And do we think we can pull one over on God? You know, there's no perfect accountability in this life. You know, we can be with each other in honesty and openness and develop trust relationships and still hide stuff. You know, obviously in our life that happens uh, all the time. But uh, so, but I think this is true. Oh Lord, if I'm serious about wanting to be your person, I'm willing to get involved in relationships where people are going to know my stuff and help me through that, that stuff in my, <clears throat> my life. Okay, let's look at some, some stages of, of trust development here. First of all, affirmation. Uh, I like Gordon McDonald's uh, comment that one solid and loving rebuke is worth 100 affirmations. I like to turn that around. We need 100 affirmations for one solid and loving rebuke. I can accept the loving rebuke if I know I am affirmed, right? I worked with a wonderful guy, a senior pastor of church in Christchurch at Oak Brook in Chicago. We developed a, I was, a, I was the executive pastor of discipleship working with him. And he could say hard things to me that I needed to hear. And I could receive them because I had no doubt about his regard for me. Personally. And so we can, we can receive those uh, if we have that. I, I, Talk about the encounter with Chris. One of the roles that I, I had, uh, besides being a pastor, was be directing the doctor ministry program at Fuller Seminary for about five years. And so I was worshiping in the congregation rather than preaching on a Sunday morning. And so one Sunday morning, my wife and I showed up to church a few minutes before worship, and I dashed into the restroom. And as I was standing there washing my hands, lo and behold, who should be standing beside me besides was our worship leader. And uh, so... Chris and I rarely had a chance to kind of cross each other. Uh, and I saw, mm, I got an opportunity here. Uh, I said, Chris, I just want to thank you for the contribution you make to this church in our worship. I don't know how you do it, but when you get up there on stage, uh, you fade in the background and Jesus emerges. And God is, you are a gift to me and this church. And he said, Thank you so much. I hardly ever hear that. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, we don't take the time to tell people the value that they have to us, the emotions. So, you know, we, and when we're starting a group, you know, I think the first thing is, hmm, am I like being with these people? <laughs> uh, we're a little bit anxious about uh, 
I'm going to be spending the next good person of a year, year and a half with this group. And I always try to start heavily relational. Tell our stories. Laugh about some crazy thing that happened in your courting your wife. You know, and so we can laugh together about these things, kind of things because it breaks down the anxiety. You're testing the water. You're sticking your toe in the water and saying, okay, are these people going to be for me? Are they going to be my cheerleaders? And uh, so we want to try to establish ways to connect people's hearts right from the beginning. In my book, uh, Disciples of Essentials, I give you suggestions in the, in the leader's guide of how to do that. You know, what's, what are some of the ways that you can make that happen early on in your, in your process? And then uh, walking together with each other through difficult times. One member suffers, all suffer together. One member is honored, all are honored together. Uh, I guarantee you, if you get together for a year, year and a half, something of a life-threatening, quality of life-threatening experience is going to happen to at least one of the members in that group. It could be a health issue. Uh, it could be a child that's gone off the rails. <laughs> uh, it could be a loss of a job. I've been in groups with people who had threatened foreclosures on their homes. Uh, these kinds of things. Uh, Ralph, why don't you tell Ed's story? <clears throat> Showed up for my, my quad meeting um, at the Mexican restaurant where we always met. We met outside in a, in a table outside, the four of us there. And uh, we'd all gotten there, and Ed was kind of late coming in, but Ed comes in and he just announces, standing up to us all, he says, I think, I think Pammy and I are through. But. Yeah, I think, uh, I just don't think we're going to make it. The other guys in the group, <clears throat> not me, the pastor, the other guys in the group said, no way. That's not happening. Sit down. For the next three weeks, we put aside the curriculum and we dealt with Ed and his, and his marriage situation. It was a struggling, it was a, it was a tough marriage in some senses. She was, it was a second marriage for her, first marriage for him. He was 10 years younger than Pam but married her and her kids and had become the father, but somehow things just weren't going well. Um, <clears throat> but the rest of the guys just loved on him, worked with him through this. The last Sunday at Camarillo Community Church, I'd been there for 32 years, and we combined, uh, we had the three, the two services in the morning and then the afternoon, we put all the services together and it was, it was come and say goodbye to Ralph and Jackie time, you know, and they handed the mic around to people that wanted to say something. And on the front row, the first one to stand up and say something was Ed. And he took that microphone and he said, Pammy and I would not be here today if we're not for that discipleship group I was with Ralph. Just, that's, that's discipleship. You know, that's involved in each other's lives. That's letting people see who you are and what's going on and what can happen. And that was not the only marriage we saw saved in yeah. our discipleship group. So, yeah. Yeah. I, one of my most recent groups, I, I mentioned last session, I love the intergenerational groups. So I had a group that was an 18 year old, 26 year old, 57 year old, and me. And uh, so two of the guys were single and young. And uh, this 57 year old, was hinting at marital issues. Give a little drop, you know. I think he was sort of testing the water. Would these two young unmarried guys even understand what marital issues are? Can I be? Can I share this? And uh, and then he got bolder and bolder to talk about his marital issues. And for about 150 days during our our discipleship group, he and his wife were separated. They initiated a separation in order to save the marriage, actually. 
and gets individual counseling, corporate counseling. And, uh, and Scott would say, it was because of the transparency of this group that I had to face up to where I was in my marriage and uh, do something about healing it. And now they are together and going strong, doing, doing well. Okay, um, listening, is the, uh, being reflective listeners. We have listeners in our life. So if you were to say, what are the good qualities of a listener? What are the best listeners in your life? And what makes them good listeners? What qualities do you notice? <coughs> Repeat back what they said. Repeat back what they said. Okay. So that means they're staying with you, really trying to understand. They're demonstrating something there that says, I'm not just going to go off on some other topic, right? Okay. That's good. What else? Eye contact. Eye contact. Yeah, I'm really very present with you. I see you. They're caring. It doesn't matter if you stop at listening. You have to, your listener has to care. Okay. And is that it? The empathetic emotions that you're you're communicating at that point? Is that what you're saying? Care or willingness to then respond, right? Not, not that they're going to overtake the conversation, but right. that whatever they're listening to, they will then take action upon. Okay. Right. Good. Thank you. Asking curious questions. Yeah. Asking questions. Oh, yeah. How many of you are real talkers? You can just be You probably have the greatest struggle, I think, in some ways. To govern oneself, knowing that that's that's right. Yeah. So being being good listeners, I think I shared briefly this story in the last session of Dave, who was with my group, who was at 52 years old and looking to it for a transition out of the insurance business into something else, something from success to significant stage of life. And I I would say that our group really helped him give birth to the call of God on his life. Because he would regularly check in with us about this major transition he was taking to leave the insurance business to step out of even having a regular income into a whole new world of C12, which is a, just a ministry to Christian CEOs and to help them run their companies as Christians. But it was it's a for-profit business, so he had to give up his income, start something new, and massive change of direction in his life. And when you're there at the birth of somebody's new direction in life, and I feel like if I can use this term, midwives, <laughs> in that process, can, can men feel like a midwife? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's what, what it felt like you know, in that, in that setting. So we have these chances to listen deeply to what the longings are of people's lives, especially the longings for ministry, what needs in my heart drawn to? That was the fourth element, you know, and, and transformative thing that we're not going to get to in detail here is to say, what, what is the ministry that God has called you to do besides the ministries of evangelism, of course? And what needs has God put placed deeply on your heart that you are to respond to? Uh, so listening. And then finally, uh, here, and this is uh, getting to the deep end of the pool, uh, which is confession of our sin. Uh, besetting sins that trip us up uh, need to need to get to the hidden things of our life. And of course, we all know James five sixteen: confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Chuck uh, was in my group. We met actually in a lawyer's uh, office around his conference table, 
And uh, we had been about this group for probably six months. And Chuck one day said, I've got to tell you guys something. And we weren't sure what was coming. You know, it sounded ominous. Uh, and it was. Uh, he said, I've been running up credit card debts. Uh, I've got about $50,000 on a credit card that I cannot pay off. I've been paying the minimal payment for a long time. And guess what? I've sent the, the credit card bills to my office, not to my home, so my wife doesn't know anything about it. And the only problem is, this is the fourth time I've done this. And she's going to explode when she hears about it. And uh, she did. Uh, rightfully so. And, but he came to us first <clears throat> to get the strength to do what he needed to do in that situation. He trusted us enough to that. I happened to be the pastor in our group, so I got involved with Sally and Chuck and their, their explosion. And uh, I'm happy to say that they are together and they worked through it. Fortunately, Sally was, a, was in corporate world and she knew how to negotiate with credit card companies. <laughs> and she was the one who able to restructure all of that debt and then make sure that that never happened again. <laughs> so, yeah, so... This Bonhoeffer quote, I think, really summarizes. You have that in your notes. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands a man by himself or a woman by herself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his, what, isolation. We withdraw. Uh, when we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, but the opposite is true. When we are not in the light, we withdraw from one another. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. So such a powerful statement about the restructuring of our hearts and lives around confession and the release uh, that comes uh, with that. One more thing, and then Ralph, we're going to come on up. Um, what my last uh, pastorate was in Chicago, Christ Church of Oak Brook, associate or uh, executive pastor of discipleship there, large congregation. And as I was getting ready to retire and uh, relocate from Chicago to California, uh, the trustees of our church uh, offered us a level of generosity that just blew our blew us away. Uh, they had, we had a loan from the church to help us buy a house, and they essentially forgave the loan. It was of a significant amount of money. And I was like, you know, we thank you for your service here and go off into the sunset and retire. Don't do anything after that. Well, I didn't do that. Um, but uh, so it's just such a heartfelt uh, thing for us. And so I went to the board of trustees and, of course, wanted to thank them personally. And choking back my tears, I was so appreciative of their generosity. And then the next day or two, I got this note from one of the members of the board of trustees. And I can't read it, but I think I can. Greg, your heartfelt remarks to the board last night prompted me to reflect on your significant impact in my life, something I have not shared with you. Gathering around Discipleship Essentials was a turning point for me transformational impact, life-changing. Awakening God's call led me to confront my drinking problem, save my marriage, 
renew numerous broken relationships. Thank you for being true to God's call on your life. It has changed mine. Blessings. Um, <clears throat> that's the kind of thing that can happen in these groups. Now, interesting enough, this individual was not in my discipleship group. It was in another group, uh, but it was that kind of experience. That, that, yeah. One of the things that is part of this, and if you've not seen the book yet, you go to about page 14 in the book and you'll find the covenant that you agree to when you start. And generally, when I'm inviting somebody to be in my group, I give them a copy of Discipleship Essentials and I say, read these first you know, 15 pages and uh, then we'll get together and discuss them. And when they finish that, I usually gather my group, the three other guys in my group, and we will go through this first page together uh, and talk about the covenant covenantal relationship um, <clears throat> you probably remember buying a car and you have to sign these documents you know say you're going to pay for this thing they'll let you have it but you've got to you've got to make covenant with them and this is a, this is what we're thinking of when we're making a covenant in this kind of thing and i want to go through the parts of the covenant so you see what people are agreeing to uh, when they join your group um, and you've got them up there, very tiny in there, not much bigger here. So I'll try to, <laughs> try to read on off my page here. Yes, in order to grow toward maturity in Christ and complete discipleship essentials, I commit uh, myself to the following standards. Number one, to complete all assignments on the, a weekly basis prior to my discipleship appointment in order to contribute fully. Now, as you've, as we've talked about the structure of these groups, we've told you that there is no leader in the group, or teacher in the group. The teacher is the Holy Spirit. Uh, the text is the Bible, and Discipleship Essentials is our roadmap through the study. But we're teaching each other. And if you come to group and you haven't done your homework, you're shortchanging me and the other guys in the group because you're supposed to spend time with God going through the, uh, the questions in, with your Bible in front of you and coming up with answers, things that God is teaching you. And you teach me and I teach you and the other guys teach us both. You know, We're, that's what's happening here. And so we agree to this covenant that we will share in this responsibility. And that's what we're asking them to do. Um, number two, I will meet weekly with my discipleship partners uh, for approximately one and a half hours um, Dialogue, to, <laughs> dialogue over the content. Kind of and I, I, I was in the parking lot of Denny's where one of my groups met, and I get met in the car door with one of my guys, and he says, you know, I'm a grandfather, and my kid is abandoned a, a grandchild, and my wife on a raising his grandchild. I'm running a business, and I just don't have time to do this homework. Can I audit this class? <laughs> And I'm thinking very sympathetic. Well, well, let's talk to the other guys. I go inside and we talk to the other. I said, tell them what. And he tells me, he says, the story to the other guys look at him and say, no way, Jose, that's not happening. You're going to, we're going to do the homework. You're going to do the homework. And I didn't have to call him on it. The other guys called him because he signed the document. He said he would. And he's in the group because he said he would. Um, that's just the agreement they made. Number three, um, offer myself fully to the Lord with this anticipation that I am entering a time of accelerated transformation during the discipleship period. Um, Greg has described this well. There's a growth anticipation here. And you can, you can tell the guys that this is gonna happen. If you come in and you 
you are part of this group in, in a healthy way, you're going you're gonna to see some amazing things happen in your life. And you can almost promise them that. It's going to happen. God's going to be at work here and it's going to change your life. And this, this part that Greg just went through, this trust and this openness uh, leads to that. I remember when I invited an, the FCA director in Ferndale uh, to join my group, and he came in the group with me, and in, in the group was Jake Locker. I don't know whether you know that name or not, but he was an NFL quarterback for the Titans. Uh, he was in the group, too, because they were in FCA together. And, and this guy, first session, he talks, he looks at the, he looks at the group. I'm not, he looks at the group and says, okay, guys, what's your favorite sin? Let's get down to brass tack. You know, let's get right to it. So, and that's the way that group was all the way. It was just very, very open, and everybody trusted. Um, number five, uh, contribute to a to a climate of honesty and trust, personal vulnerability, and the spirit of mutual upbuilding. And that's where it's going. You're building each other up. You're helping each other grow, and that's what happens here. And number five, this is one that catches a lot of folks, but. I'll give prayerful consideration to continuing the discipling chain by com committing myself to invest in at least two others, other people for the year in the year following uh, the initial completion of discipleship essentials. Now, some people get a little hesitant there because they're not sure they can ever do this. Uh, that's why we put it a little mild here. We fully expect them to reproduce, but we put it mild here because they don't know what they're getting themselves in. They haven't seen it yet. So it's it's too early for them to make a you know hard commitment. So but this is what we're beginning we want them to understand from the very beginning. This is not this discipleship essentials is not a book about discipleship. It's a book about disciple making. That's what it's but we're making not just disciple, disciple makers. And they need to understand that from the very beginning that this is what it's about and this is what they're agreeing to. And so several times during uh, the course of the uh, 25 lessons, you stop and you, there's a page in there where you go back and you check up on this commitment that you've made. And everybody reviews the commitment together and, and, uh, and assesses how well they're doing on this commitment that they've made. And by the time you get at least, you know, two thirds through, you're, you're wanting them to start thinking about who they're going to have in the next group. They've already got people in their mind that God's putting there that they're that's going to that are going to be in their group and you want them thinking that way so that by the time you get to the end they're ready to make that transition into having their own group um, it's a covenant they agree to and you as the leader uh, at least the one who's facilitating the group can hold them to this agreement because they all sign it together I think you have yours guys sign in blood is that right yeah. So yeah, you know, everybody signs. Yeah. So you're like you're everybody signs it together, and you watch everybody sign it, and they sign it. So it's a covenantal thing. It's it makes it serious, uh, but it leads to that kind of approach to this whole discipleship concept, and that's what we want. So uh, let's follow up on that a little bit in terms of the the uh, value of a covenant. Uh, is that a concept that's broadly accepted in your churches? <laughs> How many, how many of you have a covenant for your small groups? Did I just see two hands, three hands? Three hands. Four hands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, every, you actually do have a covenant. It's just not written down. And each individual has their own covenant. That's the problem. Everybody has decided in themselves their level of commitment to the group. And it's very uneven. So it's not as if there's no covenant there. So one is not spoken, and secondly, it's individual. <laughs> So, um, 
You ever see that happening in committees in the church life, right? Some are pulling a lot of weight, others are dragging along and they're not doing much. Because you not have any level set as to what the commitment level is in the group. So why do we do a covenant? Well, here's the reason. One, it empowers the leader to be the keeper of the covenant. Uh, when I say leader, facilitator, the leader basically has two roles in the unit. One is to invite people into the journey. Secondly, is to help them keep the covenant or understand the covenant. So if you were uh, getting people to gather around the covenant, how would you help them own a covenant? What would you have them do? The previous covenant we had on the screen? Uh, get, get your group started. You'd say, okay, we're going to be committed to this. What, what would you do and say, oh, how do you help them own what this is for themselves so they're committed to it? Any thoughts? I'm full of that You know, a good way through. Let's read it together. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. We agreed to this, didn't we? Yeah. Okay. I don't read it myself. I let everybody else read it. Okay. Okay. You do that initially when you get started? Or? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. But this is now I'm at the reminder phase. Okay. You can see a couple of them are going like, well, maybe I can't finish. Yeah. Let's just go through this. Okay. After lesson, and if you're doing you're using the disciples of essentials, after lesson eight and sixteen, there is an opportunity to review and redo the covenant. You do an evaluation. How are we how am I doing in terms of keeping the covenant? Uh, is there errors of I need to correct my commitment level based upon what I've committed to. Uh, do you have any disappointments about what just happened with the group? Uh, are we spending our time correctly or not? You know, if you want to rebalance things and a little more time in sharing, all this time to study or vice versa, things like that. Okay, so uh, secondly, uh, raises the level of intensity by setting the bar high. Uh, I think just by very nature of saying, oh, we're coming to a mutual covenant. Oh, this this must be serious. This must be on a different level of commitment than I've experienced before. Uh, maybe it does kind of raise, raise the level. Um, thirdly, invites the partners to hold each other in common. So it's a mutual covenant we're in this together. So if we see each other potentially flagging in certain areas and notice that Joe keeps showing up and there's nothing written in his book. Uh, hmm. Should I say something about that? <laughs> See, this person looks like they're just being you know, in a moment. Uh, we committed to have everything done before we show up. You know? So we we basically said, I've given you the right to call me. You know, I'll be observant so that I'm not following you. So, another, and one of the areas that sometimes people want to wiggle out of is scripture memory. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just have such a hard time. I had one guy in my, my group, Nick, he, he was struggling to memorize scripture. He came to our group meeting one time and he just broke down in tears over the fact that he couldn't memorize something about his aging brain that was not holding on uh, to this. And everything in my being, like you did with. With a couple of years in this situation, one thing lot would say, yeah. it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Just and I think I just said, Jeff, just keep trying. And all we don't want to turn the corner. In terms of showing up regularly, you got his wife involved. She was the one that had to listen to him, try to memorize the scripture, and he got it done. So 
um, kind of thing. And then finally, from the beginning, the prospective candidate must be able to assess what it takes uh, to be a part. So obviously, when you are inviting people into the process, one of the very things that you do is you sit down with them individually and say, here's the material we're going over, but here's the covenant. Let's read through this together. And uh, we usually say, you know, take a week to pray about this. Um, you know, this may be an addition to commitment that doesn't quite fit your schedule now. I even say to, say to guys, you have to give up something to be able to be in this group. We usually live right up to the margins, right, of our life, and then you're asking them what another few hours a week, prep time, show up time for the, for the group. Can they really make that happen? Maybe you need to rebalance your life in a way that says, I'm going to give up whatever that may be uh, to be a part of this group. So it calls that level of. And so one of the questions we oftentimes get is, how many dropouts do you get in, in, the, in this process? And I say, I say, if you do the upfront stuff right, you get very few dropouts because you ask them to consider very seriously what's involved and assess their commitment level and how they can do it. And so there's relatively few that actually turn away. I can't remember anybody in the last number of years, actually. And it's amazing when you put that bar high like that. Guys, particularly, I think, they want they don't want to be left behind. They want to go for it. I mean, if everybody else is committing to this, they're going to commit to it, too. Um, I, don't think we, I don't think we ask enough sometimes of people. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. I hope that you're enjoying these tracks from GDI. We've got one more track session from them, and then we're going to be jumping over to Renew.org's track sessions. If you haven't already, I would love it if you'd give us a like and hit subscribe and maybe even drop a review for this podcast. Let us know how we're doing, y'all. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you.